You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I am Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, unfortunately, we have to share the news that not everyone on the internet is nice. What? I know it hurts, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that you mean people would just go online and, and a, under the guise of complete anonymity and be mean <laughs> to one another. <laughs> Who would even expect that, especially on such I a charming know. place like Twitter? <laughs> That's <laughs> the breeding ground for niceties. It's really tough. I actually spoke to a student just recently, or rather that she spoke to me and told me about the struggles that one encounters when playing as a female in mm. an online lobby. And when you actively have to think about what kind of user handle am I going to use so that people can't identify me as female right away. And that even though you, it might make sense, you abstain from using the voice chat because you know that as soon as you say a word, everyone's going to be like, boo, yeah. a woman. And then it's like, oh, you're not even playing anyway. That explains why you're so terrible. That kind of attitude, you know? Yeah, we're being kind of, uh, jocular, but there are a lot of communities that do feel like 1600s witching communities where they say a woman, <laughs> get them. So I, uh, I, I don't know. It's, you know, it's uh, my only frame of reference is my experience as a white man going online and having these interactions and being disgusted and frustrated, uh, every now and again. So yeah, I can only imagine the amount of thought that goes into how you conduct yourself as a woman online. Yeah, it's really important also, especially as a, as a white man, to, that we check our privileges there and that we mm -hmm. realize that uh, sexism, racism, all of these things, um, that the fact that we're not affected by that is clearly indicative by all of the things that we do not have to think about, all of the things right. that we do not have to worry about. Like we don't usually have to worry about being, I don't know, sexually harassed in voice chat while playing a shooter or something. And uh, that is essentially what privilege means, I suppose. Mm. We're going to talk about all of these things. We're going to talk about extremism and toxicity in gaming communities. And we'll have a guest in just a moment. That will be Dr. Rachel Coward. Really looking forward to the conversation. But before we get into that, I want to briefly take a moment to thank everyone out there who joined Studying Pixels Plus, because that's how we finance our show primarily. And in return, people who do so, they receive all of our episodes entirely ad-free. They receive a lovely sticker that says, I am studying pixels and monthly plus episodes. Some of them are really deep dives into video game culture. Our current one, most recent one, is uh, an overview of the earlier God of War games, an interpretation of these earlier God of War games. The others are also explorations of things that can help you actively study and write your dissertation and such things. So there's lots to gain by joining Studying Pixels Plus. And if you would like to do so, then you can head over to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today, we're going to talk about extremism and toxicity in video game communities. Because we know of the most extreme examples, of course. We know that we've got uh, neo-Nazi terrorist attacks where people are keeping high scores, where uh, culprits are being celebrated within video game communities, within Steam communities. But it's also on a much more broad level, like we mentioned at the very beginning. The tolerance of sexism, the slight introduction and then escalation of racism, and pretty much a disdain for anything that is categorically different. In order to explore that topic, we're happy to have Dr. Rachel Colwood on the show. She examines exactly this phenomenon. She's an award-winning author of books such as The Video Game Debate and A Parent's Guide to Video Games, many more as well. Uh, but I'm not going to name all of them because otherwise the entire show would just go on with her books and publications. She's been researching the social significance of video games since 2010. She's a research director at Take This, which is a much beloved NGO to support mental health in video games. And she maintains a fantastic YouTube channel called Psychgeist, where she talks about all things gaming and psychology. So happy to have you on the show. Hi, Rachel. Hi, how are you? I'm great. And I hope you are as well, especially after getting so much attention from a study you just recently published. Ah, yes, that is what we are here <laughs> to talk about. Indeed. Yes. The study is called Not Just a Game, Identity, Fusion and Extremism in Gaming Cultures. And you published it in cooperation with Alexi Martel and William B. Swan. What was the key idea behind this study? Because there's often like an initial approach or an, a daily observation that motivates such academic inquiries, right? Absolutely. I've always been interested in gamer culture. I wrote a piece back in 2014 in response. Dan Golding wrote a piece saying we should get rid of the term gamer. It's too toxic. And this was back in 2014. And I wrote back and I was like, no, we should reclaim. I was so optimistic. We should reclaim the title gamer. Um, it's meant to be inclusive. But, you know, over time, it's only become, you know, we saw the Gamergate and everything um, more associated with exclusion than inclusion. And I thought, there's got to be an impact or an influence of the culture that is somehow perhaps changing the way in which people are interacting and engaging with each other. And it might be specific to games. So that was kind of the initial percolation of ideas. So what was the reason why would people want to abolish the term gamer? Can you explain that a little bit more in detail? Yes, this was post Gamergate. And so the term gamer had come to be associated with well, already people in the stereotype, lonely, isolated, overweight, socially inept, but then it had progressed into also being associated with hateful um, content, perhaps real world threats and real world violence, as in the case um, with Gamergate. And so Dan's piece was just kind of like, 
We all like games and games are meant to be fun. I don't want anything to do with those negative connotations. I just want to play games and live my life, basically. It is really a contentious matter, right? Because you have, on the one hand, the situation that, uh, of course, it is empowering to have a certain identity ascription of like, we are gamers and we want this or we want that, regardless of what the content of what such demands would be. But on the other hand, it is always exclusive. For example, when my mother likes to play some Candy Crush, and actually does that quite a bit, right? She she does that every day and sometimes even for one for an hour or two. Sometimes she plays more games than I do. Still, she wouldn't consider herself to be a gamer. So there's more than just simply the act of playing that makes a gamer. Yes. So there's a difference. And, and this is a soapbox, that a hill I will die on. Um, a player is a functional state of engaging. Your mom is a player. My mom plays Wordle every day. She's a player. Hmm. A gamer is an identity and we adopt a lot of different social identities and it's how we situate ourselves in the world and compare ourselves to other people in the world. It's a natural way that we categorize and organize groups as humans. I would consider myself a gamer. I've considered myself a gamer since I was, you know, got my first NES. I was, you know, six years old. I was in love. I haven't played a game in ages. I have three young children, but I would still say I'm a gamer. So there is absolutely a differentiation between playing, like my mom plays more games than me probably, uh, and adopting that identity as part of who you are. So what makes that identity of the gamer? Is that something when it's to a certain degree removed from the act of playing, then is it the involvement with other people that play? Is it the presence in certain communities, the reading magazines and news and I don't know, posting in a Kotaku forum? Mm -hmm. It's all of the above. So we tend to adopt our identities and express them in different ways, whether it's through playing. I mean, I would love to play more games than just kids, you know, uh, and time is finite. You know, the the things we have in our office, uh, you guys can't see us, you can just hear us, but behind me, I have lots of references to like Portal and The Witcher and um, Final Fantasy VI and all these things behind me is how I express my identity as a gamer or funny t-shirts or writing Kotaku forums or being active on Reddit. So there's all different ways that we can express our involvement and our affiliation with the group. And typically it's also one of the things we use to um, connect with other people. So if you go to a convention like a PAX, for instance, like, oh, what are you playing? Or what are you playing? And I say, I'm playing nothing, but what are you playing? Let's talk about that. And it's a way that you can find a common ground and, and foster, you know, social relationships. It's funny too, because I think you just mentioned, you know, Final Fantasy VI and The Witcher, which I know that you're, a, uh, I should say, a fan of. I think is that fair okay. to say? <laughs> so <clears throat> I think that there's there's two sides to the coin where, because uh, I've, I've spoken at a few PAXs and every time I go, my favorite thing to do is figure out, okay, the people that I'm talking to, what is their, how did they construct their identity through games? On the positive side of things, it's a way to connect with people and say, oh, I love Final Fantasy VI too. Have you played the other ones, right? And get into that conversation. The negative side of things, uh, if, if you say that you don't like something or if something is maybe problematic in one way, because they're so engaged with that, they seem to take that immediately as a personal attack. And would you say that that is maybe the way that this leads into these kind of toxic environments that we run into every now and again? I mean, perhaps. I think that people are very protective of their fandoms, um, whether it's games or whether it's, you know, a new writer for a comic book that they've been following or... Sure. People do take it, like, very seriously, which is fine. Um, 
but yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that's unique to games, but it's absolutely a component of games for sure. I also think that in addition to liking certain things and um, expressing symbolically, expressing that passion, there's also a certain foundation of knowledge that would at least be anticipated, right? In a gaming community, then we we sit together here and we throw words around like Final Fantasy VI, where someone who doesn't have that kind of biographical involvement with video games would be like, what are you even talking about? You know, all of these names, they're all over the place. So it is also a certain degree of knowledge, or at least the anticipation of knowledge that is inscribed in that gamer term. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's like the thread that binds us all together. So I may not have played Final Fantasy 15, I haven't, it's sad. Um, but I can talk to you about the ones, you know, from the 90s very easily. <laughs> Whenever you have a critical angle on a certain identity construction, and especially if it is that of a gamer, at least uh, according to the experiences that I've made in online discourses so far, there's often a certain <laughs> uh, 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 backlash against that criticism. And I know that you've received quite some of that in response to the study that you've published. We're going to go into the details in just a moment, but why is, to which degree is your study different from an outright attack of we should abolish the term gamer or we should get rid of, especially like, you know, violent video games because they are a threat to our children. There is, it's clearly different. How is it distinct from that? Absolutely. I Let's open by saying violent video games do not change one's behavior and make you a violent criminal. It, it, it is not linked. There's been thousands of studies to debunk that. And I think that this study has gotten taken out of context sometimes with the headlines and people think I'm further reiterating that point, which I am vehemently not reiterating that point. The point of the paper and how it differentiates, it's not about moral panic. I don't think we should abolish the term gamer. I proudly adopt the term gamer. This paper was about exploring the ways in which the quote unquote toxic gamer culture, which is like the culturally accepted level of toxicity that has embedded itself within gamer culture is being specifically leveraged by bad actors for specifically bad things. So I'm not saying that everyone who plays games is a violent criminal. I'm not saying everyone who's a gamer is going to become someone who's ex an extremist or radicalized online. I'm saying that there are people entering this space specifically with the purpose to leverage the gamer identity. Um, and use that as a way to find a common ground and then proceed to more nefarious behavior. So I'm not as academically engaged as Stefan is, but I am uh, terminally online, as they say. <laughs> so I'm, I know a lot of YouTubers. I follow a lot of people on Twitter. And I think that it is the reason I, I felt like the conclusion was coming was because in the past eight, nine, ten years, you know, since Gamergate and things, you do just get this kind of nasty feeling that there are bad actors leveraging, as you said, these communities and kind of pointing people in a direction that you don't want them to be pointed in. Exactly. I, I refer to them as cultural assets of influence. That's kind of the phrase that I, I tend to use because it's the culture of gaming, this idea of us versus them, um, this idea of there's a certain level of accepted hate that maybe you'll laugh as a joke when you first hear it, but then eventually, right, it becomes more sinister. Um, so yeah, I know I had it in the pit of my stomach too, <laughs> to be honest. But I was just going to say that, uh, the way you expressed it just now, it almost sounded as if it's like, a the idea of they're basically, a, a I'm going to say like a few bad apples. There are a few actors that specifically leverage video game communities and drive them towards more extremism. But at the same time, 
video game communities also need to be, uh, let's say, fruitful soil for such um, yes. toxic behavior. So that's where I'm wondering, is it really just like basically external actors coming in or is it rather just um, the community as such that has attributes that makes them more inclined to engage with radicalism? Yes, there are attributes of games themselves. Um, I have a book chapter coming out later this year that really talks about the theoretical underpinnings. It's, the, it's called Digital Games as Cultural Assets of Influence. Um, but like the TLDR is that um, relationships within games, we know, form very quickly and have a foundational level of trust because you have a shared activity, right? So friendships form very quickly. They tend to be close and long lasting, which is unlike relationships formed in other spaces on the internet, which tend to be more diffuse and less close. Then we have gaming content, the us versus them, which isn't inherently bad. I'm not saying don't make games that have that, but I'm saying that can also be leveraged to further discuss about these con these concepts of us versus them, which is the basis of a lot of radicalization um, and extremist ideologies is like, if they're not like us, then they're out on the outs. And then the third is the normalization of, of hate and toxicity, because we know from research that all forms of, of disruption, you know, from trash toxing to swatting is more the exception than the norm. But if, you know, more people see it or witness it or directly experience it, then don't. But even if we look at the more extreme forms, you know, like trash talking is generally an accepted part of gamer culture. But if you look at things like sexual harassment, prolonged harassment, threats of violence, even those are more the exception than the norm. So all of those three things kind of make a cocktail, so to say, that make these spaces more vulnerable to be leveraged in this way than other spaces on the internet. Would you say that video game communities are especially vulnerable to such, uh, let's say, extremist tendencies? Because of a lot of things that you just mentioned, I immediately thought, hmm, when I think of, I don't know, football fan clubs, for example, there are probably lots of very similar attributes. They bind people together. They have an us versus them ideology. And they're also often quite tolerant of uh, toxic verbiage and exclusion. They are similar, but there are some differences. For instance, um, games have that extra level of anonymity, which tends to expedite the relationship process. Again, that shared activity is a bit different than you would see for somebody cheering for the same fandom. You're creating trust by, by I play with Stefan and Stefan doesn't move out of the fire of the dragon. I don't like Stefan. I'm not going to talk to him anymore. Right. But if I play <laughs> yeah. with Dan and Dan immediately moves out of the fire, I'm like, I like Dan. I know nothing about you, but yet I already trust you. And if Dan says, you know, a joke that maybe is a bit off color, I'll be like, well, you know, Dan did move out of the fire. So, I mean, I guess he's cool. And then Dan says, let me take you into this discord where I have other cool friends. And I'm like, well, it sounds good to me. And then those are how the processes really start, which really is unique to having a shared, what I call stressful and trust building series of exercises and the equivalent. And we'll talk about it in the paper. The equivalent is like a military group um, really, which is like close, tight-knit bonds, shared stressful activities. You kind of have like a shared culture. And even if you don't know each other personally really well, my father was a Marine. He met another Marine. They were instant friends. He knew nothing about the other person, but he loved them from the beginning. And um, we find the same with, with gamers tend, tend to be the same. That's something that I, I latched on to reading through everything is this idea of, you know, specifically like a Call of Duty lobby where there's it's easy to make the connection between this sort of idea of militaristic bonding where, um, you know, you're, you have a shared goal, you're, you know, doing these things together, you're working as a team, 
But I think that what's so interesting to me is that I would imagine having not been in any military capacity myself, you know, going through basic trainer training or going through Marine training, that's a, a prolonged thing where you come to know people very personally and you see them every day and you, you get to know how they talk and how they act and how they look. Whereas what you just described, if I get out of the fire, all of that happens in like a second where it's like, oh, that guy's good. I like that guy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a phrase that Nikki uses. He talks about friendships being quote unquote, emotionally jumpstarted. Oh uh-huh, yeah. It's because of that. Yeah. There is also a distinctly performative level to it um, or an experiential level to it because there's, there, there are quite some things that yeah, differentiate games from, from other kinds of uh, communities. Uh, I was just thinking about uh, forums about for, for cinephiles, for people who love to go to the movies, people who love the Harry Potter series, for example, or I don't know, Game of Thrones, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less contested nowadays. <laughs> but the thing is that in video games, you often have um, not only in the knowledge of how to act in a certain game, but you also have a very specific terminology. That's why I think the military equivalent is, or the comparison is so interesting because in the military you also have like lots of abbreviations and colloquialisms that you wouldn't understand at all if you were not a part of it. And the same is maybe true for the community of people who love to play Destiny 2. Yeah, absolutely. It's a sh- You have a shared language and you have a shared culture, right? Gamer culture is a shared culture. And then, yeah, you can even be further go differentiated into the specific Destiny 2, you know, World of Warcraft, whatever. I was thinking uh, when you said Dragon and Fire, I was thinking of my experience with World of Warcraft. Yeah. And funnily enough, even amongst one another, uh, it can be difficult for such uh, communities to engage with one another because the language can be so specific on a game per game basis. Because there's such a profound difference between uh, the video game community that plays World of Warcraft and the one that plays League of Legends, for example. Sure. Huge differences. There are differences, I would would say, in like maybe the specifics, but we all have the same experience of like grinding or a really clutch win or um, World of Warcraft, your bank being robbed and all your stuff being taken. Um, (laughs) You know, whatever it might be. There's some shared ground between games and genres. Especially when we look at comparisons between different kind of video gaming communities do they have a different degree of potential towards um extremism yes so so the work that i i did was um with identity fusion it was a series of three studies and in the third study we asked that question specifically will we see differences if we look at different gaming communities and we looked at call of duty versus minecraft and the reason we did that is because it's well documented that Call of Duty has high levels of social toxicity. It actually won some kind of unofficial award as the most toxic online community in games. Whereas Minecraft won a golden joystick award for being the most welcoming uh, community in games. Not to say toxicity doesn't exist there, it certainly does. Um, But I thought, okay, that might be a good place, a good way to differentiate between the two extremes. We did also ask participants, how toxic is your gaming environment? Minecraft versus Call of Duty and Call of Duty was rated significantly higher. So when we looked at the results of what kind of profile emerges when it comes to identity fusion across these two players of games who primarily play different games, the Call of Duty players emerged with a profile that was more in line with what we say would be an extreme kind of point of view, you know, racism, sexism, narcissism, low levels of empathy, whereas we didn't see the same with Minecraft. And what was particularly interesting is if you didn't consider identity in the model, 
and you just looked at the average differences on sexism measures or racism measures, there was no difference. But when you put identity into the model is when the differences emerged. Now, following that study, I had some thoughts about, well, maybe there's other differences besides just social toxicity. Call of Duty is kind of a politically themed, you know, first person shooter with violent content. Minecraft is more of a sandbox um, type game. So we are doing more research now to really tease apart content versus mechanics for social environment to really see if there's some some more nuanced conversation to have there. Um, but from the broad strokes, broad level, we are seeing differences between communities. What do you think? Why? do these differences emerge? I mean, you mentioned now that Call of Duty and Minecraft are probably the furthest apart that they possibly could be. And I assume that there are tons of factors that influence this, such as Call of Duty being primarily a competitive game, Minecraft being primarily cooperative, the one having a military setting, the other one having a more like building, crafting, do whatever you want kind of setting. Yeah, well, the, the working hypothesis was that it was less about the content and less about the mechanics and more about the, the social environment. Now, a competitive game versus a cooperative will impact the nature of the social environment. We do know that from other research. They tend to have higher levels of um, disruptive behavior, however you want to call it. So, I mean, I, I do think we need to tease it out, but I think the heart of it is really the social environment. And we've been having conversations about video games for 50 years and the, the conversations have always been about content. And I think that that is, there's a space to have a content discussion, but I don't think content is really the driving factor here, at least when it comes to radicalization and extremism. I think a hundred percent, 98 percent, it's the social community. One of the things that strikes me about that and why I think it's so important to look at it from that lens is it's almost it's it's almost a foregone conclusion with something like Call of Duty where you think like okay everything everything kind of lines up to what I'm thinking here. <laughs> sure. But but with with Minecraft as I was thinking about it there's something about the community that you mentioned earlier the sort of pipeline, if you want to call it, where you get kind of familiar with somebody and then they say, Hey, you like that joke? Come over to my discord server and you'll meet all these other cool guys who talk about this too. I would be really interesting, interested to see how deep the rabbit hole goes, goes with like private Minecraft servers and things like that, where, you know, Hey, if you want to play with us, we have this set up for our discord where you come in and, you know, maybe it's a different kind of environment there that's off the beaten path a little bit. I mean, we see things like Nazi concentration camps being built in, in Minecraft. And so we do see like this sense of um, radicalization and extreme behavior being being done through the content. And it's interesting you speak about private Minecraft servers. So it's really hard to do the work looking at chat logs and seeing what's really going on because um, privacy laws and that sort of thing. But I did do a study that came out this year looking at private Minecraft servers. So it was done in collaboration with the Anti-Defamation League, uh, Middlebury. Take this and uh, Gamer Safer, which provides a moderation service for private Minecraft servers. And we looked at three different servers, one and a half million chat logs. And what we found was that there is a normalization of extremist language, even within these servers. So there was specific words that we were looking for that three years ago were only in the dark corners of 4chan. They were not words that people used. And now they're being used in a very casual, I think they're there's evidence to suggest they're not using it in the way in which it's intended. They're using it very casually. Um, but these words are permeating these spaces. So it's like, where, where is the pipeline? Like how are, is this extreme language becoming normalized in gamer cultures? Which I think is just further points to the idea that a certain degree of hate and exclusion is normalized. Yeah. Especially because there is a lot of 
meme culture that has been yes. adopted by alt-right discourses, um, I just felt uh, reminded of this subscribe to PewDiePie meme that was uttered by the assailant in the Christchurch terrorist attack, which is uh, profoundly baffling. But yes, there is lots of meme language and kind of like lols and giggles revolving around such even such extreme neo-Nazi terrorist attacks. That's how it starts. It's a meme. Do you laugh? Do you not laugh? Right. My, my colleagues, Alex Newhouse at Middlebury talks about the radicalization funnel and how it starts wide. It starts with a meme and you see who laughs and then you get a little bit more um, virulent and then you see who kind of laughs and then you get a little bit more and a little bit more. And at the end, you have a small group. Um, we're talking about small numbers of people, but the people are extremely hardened and they can have a very strong impact on the culture broadly, even though it's a small Number. And that's the other point to make. We're talking about gamers broadly. Gamers generally are wonderful, lovely humans. I love them. They are my people. We're talking about a very small group of bad actors. But what, what we're seeing is that this group is translating into offline violence. It is translating into radicalization funnels that contributed to the Christchurch shooter. We can see, we can follow the path that contributed to the Buffalo shooting, right? So this is something that is very critical to understand and explore how these spaces are being leveraged because we obviously do not want um, a, a space that is very open for a kind of radicalization that proceeds to real world violence. All right, let's take a brief break here and then we'll be right back to talk about how loneliness factors into the equation. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It is indeed also the case that there are a lot of people 
in gaming communities that may to a certain degree be vulnerable to being yes. enticed into such extremist ideologies. Because in your second study, the focal point is actually loneliness and the fact that there are lots of people. It's not just in the gaming community, but also in the gaming community. People that are lonely and that use games also to connect with others, to find friends and to stay in touch. And that makes people vulnerable, doesn't it? Absolutely. I'm going to find this quote. I'm going to find this quote. Um, yeah, so not all people who play games are lonely, but a lot of people who engage in gaming spaces and online gaming spaces do so because they are searching for community. Like that is very well documented and very well known. And what's really interesting is there was a piece that came out just yesterday. That's why I had to find the quote from the conversation. <laughs> it was a piece from a literary, uh, a library studies scholar. And she interviewed somebody who was a person in games, specifically radicalizing, like their, their job was to go into games and try to find youth to radicalize. And his quote that he told her said, they appealed to my desperate need for identity, community, and purpose. I was bullied and they provided safety. I was lonely and they provided family. And that's how they draw people in with a sense of belonging. And that's why it goes back to that gamer identity in those gamer cultures. It's a very strong motivator. We all want to feel connected to other people. That's the thing that, that kind of tugs at my heart so much because, you know, especially you mentioned PAX. Like I, I love going to PAX and I think... For me, especially as I've I've been going for about seven years in different capacities, and I think that sometimes like I'll see something that breaks my heart a little bit, and it won't be like a mean thing. It'll be somebody who's young, who is so excited to be there, and I just have this moment where I go, oh, that's a kid looking for friends and looking for community. And finding it. Yes. yes. And and that's, but you know, it's it's kind of a nice heartbreak, like, oh, good, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I I know that that's where a lot of this comes from, I think, is exactly, I, I want this group. And I I'm rem I wish I could remember the documentary name, but there is a fantastic documentary about an ex-neo-Nazi who said the same thing, where he said, I was, I was ostracized, I was alone, and these people, they offered me community. And I think it's just, you, you hit something at the wrong time or, or at the wrong place and all of a sudden there you go absolutely and and rather than finding you know your local group of neo-nazis which exists and, but maybe are harder to find billions of people play games you can play them on your phone it's so easily accept, uh, accessible to people which is why there is such a concern there's a global audience it's a huge audience i know the average players in their 30s but there are a lot of young people in the space um, searching for, you know, a found family. And to be fair, I found my family in World of Warcraft back in the early 2000s. Um, it was a while ago. <laughs> but I, I, I hold those memories so close to my heart, even now still. Um, so I can see how it's a very slippery slope that, that can happen. But that's the interesting point, I think, because... Uh, the idea is not to say, oh, you shouldn't, you should go outside and you should not turn to games and gaming communities. The idea is we as a gaming community, we don't want people to go down the slippery slope of radicalization. So the big question, if we can ascertain now by virtue of the results of the study and also many of the other studies that you've worked on and published, that there is this potential, that it is there and that we need to pay attention to it. The big question becomes, what do we do in order to tackle it? What kind of gaming community do we want to be? Exactly. And, and there's a lot of strategies, both top down from the industry level and bottom up from the game player level um, that I think can, I think this problem can be solved. It's going to take both, you know, top down and bottom up 
step one is even having the conversation. It's a difficult conversation to have. And I understand it's uncomfortable. Um, but if we don't have the conversation, then we can't address the issues. Um, so for example, one thing that from the bottom up that game players can do, we found in that work on, on the Minecraft servers that the best predictor of lower levels of hateful or extremist language in, in a, any particular server, the best predictor was actually very specific and enforced community guidelines. That was the, the servers that had the most community guidelines and that were most specific. So not rules like be nice, like, like specific rules, like hate speech will be a bannable offense, you know, things very specific. Right. That was far more effective at long-term uh, the, the nature of the community than uh, moderation, more strict uh, moderators, which has its time and place for short-term efficiency. Absolutely, moderators should be there. So that's something to consider. So, you know, more research is needed really to kind of figure out, okay, what is it about the community rules? What's like the, the formula that we need, you know, to at least, you know, try to make some dents from the bottom up. And from the top down, um, we need more effective moderation. First of all, we need to have the conversation. We need to make sure that people in the industry are even aware that this is an issue. And we need to think of new and novel ways to moderate the space. Alex and I always suggest social network moderation, which is something that's been used in tech companies for 20 years. Uh, gaming companies uh, largely still do not use it or adopt it. And um, with our work, Alex and I are really trying to change that and, and bring some focus to that strategy within the industry to, to try and disrupt these networks and gaming spaces more effectively. Now, what if I am in a situation, and I know this is a very... Uh, a strangely exemplary question, but <laughs> what if I'm in the situation that I have people in my personal environment, I, I love video games and I've got people in my environment that also do, and I notice that they might be falling with the wrong crowd and that I get concerned about them. Uh, do you have a point, piece of advice that you could give in case that anyone out there is experiencing this? Yeah, I mean, see something, say something is a very common thing that people say, but we do also know from research, like for instance, with something more mild, like harassment, if, if I'm being harassed by somebody who on, on the headset sounds like a male mm -hmm. and Stefan is there and he's like, Hey, yo, that's not cool. Someone who is of a similar social status, that's actually super effective at stopping the behavior. Um, so even just like call out, sometimes that's all we really need to kind of like, oh, right. Like that isn't funny to say these racial slurs and that doesn't matter. Like that Bob over there is saying, then you shouldn't laugh. That's really not cool. Um, and also, you know, you can report it. I know reporting is also a thing that people are like, I roll report it. Um, they do actually read them. <laughs> they do actually see them. How effective those reports translate into action is something that maybe needs a little work. Um, but it's better than doing nothing. A friend of mine, this is an anecdote, an anecdote, but a friend of mine was in a community like that. And he was telling me a story about how somebody was making very dog whistly jokes about Jewish people. And um, he just played dumb and he, he, he acted as if he had no irony. And he just said, why is that funny? What, what are you saying? What is that? Like trying to call it out and just yeah. trying to get him to explain like what he was saying. People peter out pretty quickly. That's a great example. Because it's yeah. not funny, first of all. And second of all, when you try to explain it, it's even less of... Yeah, of it's just hate. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, actually, that's a really crappy thing to say. Okay, I've got one brief conclusive question also on the subject of hate. Because I noticed that in the study, and this is uh, from a question from academic to academic, that you had a, a sentence in there for the sake of transparency, a disclaimer where you say that you made sure that the personal information of everyone involved in the study, and I'm saying the researchers, of course, 
is not available online. I assume for the sake of protecting yourselves from potential hate mail and threats and such things. Yeah. Is that the, the reason? Is that the background behind it? That is the reason. And, you know, I got into this work. I, I've dedicated my career, actually, to disproving the stereotype of gamers and, and screaming from the rooftops, like the positive effects of games. But I still do that. And I'm a firm believer. And then I read in 2019 a report from the Anti-Defamation League that said one in four game players are exposed to white supremacist ideology online. And it stopped me. It stopped me by tracks. I couldn't believe it. I was like, one in four. It's so high. Um, and I did some research and I realized nobody was really looking in, like, why is this so high? Like, I know there's trash talking, but it, white supremacy is, you know, the next level. And so I, I started down that rabbit hole of research to where I am today. And I never really thought about what I was actually getting into. So when I started publishing work specifically about extremist radicalization in games, my organization that I work for, Take This, they hired a service. Um, that went that went on the internet to find, you know, what can we find about you? Can we find personal information about you? Or can we find pictures of you from college? Or like, what can we find? And all of that was scraped off the internet because I'm, I'm happy to field questions, but I'm not happy for people to know where I live, <laughs> right? <Of> so <laughs> it's really, you know, it's an important pro point of the process. And I have a colleague too who studies um, similar communities And I was talking to her last week and she didn't go through the same steps because nobody really prepares you for that, which is why it's in the paper. It's like, if you're reading this and you want to follow up, you should also do this. And she says she has to move every six months because people know, and she doesn't live with her partner and her child. She lives separate from them. And it's absolutely awful. Like we just want to make the world a better place. We don't want to, we, you know, and that comes with consequences, I guess, of, of being the loudest voice in the room. So yes, if you're going to do in this work, um, do that step one before publishing stuff in this Well, and, and I mean, that's awful to hear that, that story about the six month moving in, but I would, I would say too, like they, you know, they're, they're anonymous. So I think it's, it's only fair that, you know, you retain <laughs> your privacy, right? I should so, have a level yeah. of anonymity as well. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you should publish studies under your discord tag or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right, guys. That's just going to be, yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so very much for the conversation, Rachel. Yes, thank you for having me. That was Dr. Rachel Colwert. Thank you so very much for the conversation. Of course, you can find the study that we spoke about now, not just the game Identity Fusion and Extremism in Gaming Cultures, linked in our show notes, alongside Rachel's website, her YouTube channel, and Twitter handle. One thing that I'm mulling over that we had the conversation just now, we spoke about things like Call of Duty, we spoke about League of Legends, we spoke about Minecraft. One thing that we haven't addressed, and it's actually quite peculiar, the From Software community, because I often hear that there's such profound toxicity and vile behavior in the From Software community. Yet, on the other hand, I experience so much positive things, so much encouragement, so much love, so much care, and sincere intrigue for the games. That's a weird, a weird disparity, isn't it? It's funny that you bring this up because. I didn't even think to bring it up because I'm so involved in the From Software community that I just thought, well, it's not my community. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't think to bring it up either because when I started getting involved in the FromSoft community, then mm. I largely have seen only the positive sides. I've seen people compiling all sorts of guides and discussing things, helping each other out. I've had, if I may tell a brief story, in Bloodborne, someone join my game to kill me And then uh, even I had collected so many, what was it? It's not 
souls in blood echoes. Bloodborne. It's blood echoes. Yes, I collected so many blood echoes, and I didn't want to lose them, so I had such little health that I did like a begging gesture, and the person just bowed and left. I found that such a that's so honorable. I thought it was so polite and beautiful. And that's not a unusual experience either. Even in Elden Ring, I think a lot of people, you know, here's here's what I'll say about it. So. The From Software community definitely is gross sometimes, but I think the big difference is compared to a Call of Duty or a Minecraft or a League of Legends especially, is that you don't have to play with other people to engage with the world. So you can be on your own, and if you want to look up guides or if you want to look up lore or anything like that, you can find information online or go to YouTube and find people who've lovingly crafted these things and put them together. And you can engage with them instead of the get good people who are kind of engaging in it uh, electively, I would say, to sort of say, hey, here's my badge of honor. Everybody get good. I can do this game with so many restrictions and you're not good if you don't do it, right? You don't have, you're not bombarded with those people when you play because the people who you are met with when you actually play, sometimes it's people who are frustrating and knock you down and kill you mercilessly but that's also kind of what the game is <laughs> and then i would say you equally find people who spared your life like you did stuff on because people know that it's a hard game and want everyone to have a fun time and i would say the last thing on that is that i can almost imagine the player who spared your life saying well, this wouldn't be a fair fight anyway. I'm going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no fun killing that yeah. dude just now. But I think circumventing this kind of elitism and this get good ideology of the From Software community might be so vital to enjoying it. Because I know I agree. that there are so many people who engage with these games and that find them incredibly hard. And that is the point. It's part of the reason for why people enjoy these games that they are difficult. And what kind of joy would it be if it would only be cherished by those that are already good at it or only those yeah. that are like uh, basically let me solo her fighting the hardest uh, the hardest battles of Elden Ring over and over which I find really amazing by the way I find really amazing that people do that uh, but I think it's so important for especially such a community to be open and inclusive to new people because they are about they are on the threshold of making an amazing experience that will be humiliating and tough, but ultimately also really inspiring. And that's why I think it's so important to keep that community healthy and open-minded. And Rachel mentioned um, that it's uh, bottom-up and top-down. And I think that bottom-up, there's a really lovely community in From Software that will get you engaged. They want you to like this story with them. They want you to engage with it. And bottom-down, we talked about this in our Elden Ring review, it seems pretty deliberate that they leveled the playing field with Elden Ring to make it more inclusive for people, keeping the difficulty, but not making it as obtuse as the other games and drawing people in. Which makes me kind of think the obtuseness was never their intent. It was just a byproduct that happened. And they come along with Elden Ring and say, no, we want everyone to play this. And so now, what is it, 10 billion people have played Elden Ring or something like yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. I think, part of the reason for why Elden Ring has become such a big hit because, of course, if you are an expert from software player, then you can go in there and you can engage with all the min-maxing and you can get the most creative builds and kill people in ways that they would never anticipate. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> At the same time, you can also go in completely blind as someone who plays uh, a From Software game for the very first time, and you can skill what you like and what you desire, and you can still have a satisfying experience without worrying too much about min-maxing and about competitive play. I find that truly amazing. Top down and bottom up, I think, the From Software community is more good eggs than bad eggs. And the nice thing about it is that you don't have to engage with the bad eggs if you don't want to, unlike, say, League of Legends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really tough. But you know what? You know which community is really nice? The Studying Pixels community. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all so very much for being around, for being part of this community, and for making it a nice, open, and inclusive place for everyone. If you want to submit your thoughts and questions, then you can reach out on studyingpixels.com contact. And you also know that you can support us in making this show happen by going to studyingpixels.com plus. Thank you so very much. And we'll talk again next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.